0: Our guest today is a private investigator who's been involved in over 100 murder cases. In the course of his PI work, he's conducted surveillance, tailed people, and even spirited a subject across international borders. Josiah Thompson chronicled his life as a Bay Area detective in the book Gumshoe, Reflections of a Private Eye. It was not Dr. Thompson's first book. Previous efforts included studies of Soren Kierkegaard. For our guest today is a Yale graduate and had been a professor of philosophy at Pennsylvania's Haverford College before leaving the academic life for one of sleuthing. His 1967 book, Six Seconds in Dallas, was the only work this correspondent ever had a bookstore set aside the day it hit the shelves. It was a milestone investigation of the assassination of President Kennedy and made a devastating case that the Warren Commission was wrong. The evidence presented, including the author's fortuitous analysis of the Zapruder film, then closely held by Life magazine and revealed that there had to have been multiple gunmen in Dealey Plaza that day. Six seconds to this day is regarded as one of the best studies of the case. Our guest has come forward in recent years to note that he made a key error in his original analysis, and this error may have prevented a resolution of the case. His yet-to-be-published book, Revisiting the Assassination, is sure to create waves. We've been keen to talk with Josiah Thompson about his career path. We should also note that he was a Navy frogman on an underwater demolition team, and why he thinks that finally, 50 years on, we may solve many of the mysteries of what happened to JFK. Josiah Thompson, welcome to Radio Parallax. Thank you. The change from college philosophy professor to private eye does stand out in anyone's resume. Uh, We have to ask, what led you to leave the academic world for one of um, martinis with microphones in the olives?
1: I was looking for something more. And I found it in California when uh, I had dinner with the legendary grandfather of Saul in private detective, Harold K. Lipset. Harold K. Lipset had retrieved the child stolen for a woman whom I met, and we all had dinner at Grisson's restaurant in San Francisco. I hit Hal for a job and was amazed two days later when I got a call from his junior partner, David Fetchheimer, saying, Come on in, I want to interview for th- for this job. I got on my motorcycle rode into this Victorian mansion on Pacific Avenue, walked through the door, and a guy in shirt sleeves walked by carrying a file. He turned around and he said, "Uh, you Thompson? And I said, yeah, you Fetchheimer? He said, yeah. And he handed me the file. In the file was a photograph of a guy, a license plate of a car, and an address in Oakland. And he said, before turning away, you'll be on him at 5.30 today. (laughs) Now, look, these guys were set up for the professor. Here was this lefty college professor who they assigned the role of tailing union leadership in a violent labor dispute in Oakland. (laughs) And it all went on from there.
0: (laughs) Is it true that Hal Lipset really did pioneer the uh, martini with a microphone?
1: That was his wireman, uh, a guy named Ralph Birchie. And uh, Ralph Birchie was was a wonderful character. He's the Gene Hackman character in the film The Conversation. Uh, Coppola went to Lipset, talked to Birchie, and that's where the character came. I worked one case with Ralph Birchie. It was uh, some dope dealer in Marin. And we checked his house and we're driving back to the city over the Golden Gate Bridge, and just about the time we hit the bridge, I said to Ralph, I said, Hey, what about cover stories? Do you ever make them up in advance? And he said, No, no, you can't do it that way. You can't do it that way. And he told me this wonderful little vignette. He'd been hired back in the old days when this was not illegal. Uh, a woman thought her husband was bringing home women to their flat up in Pacific Heights during the day because she was off working. So she hired Bertie to plant bugs around in all the various rooms. And Birchie was down in the basement of this townhouse in Pacific Heights with his earphones on, adjusting the gain on the various microphones, and he heard very loud footsteps up on the first floor. And then the door was flung open, and the husband's standing there, looking down the stairs and seeing Bertie with his headphones on. And the husband says, "'What the hell are you doing down there?' Bertie said. So I put the headphones back, gave me enough time to think, and I looked up, up to him, and I said, uh, "'Listening for termites. I'm from the termite exterminating company.'" <laughs> And he said, that's why you never do it in advance.
0: (laughs) Well, we certainly recommend our listeners do check out Gumshoe. It's a great read. But I would ask in the meantime, what surprised you the most about the real world of investigations as opposed to maybe how we all think about that sort of work?
1: When I first started in this world, I tried to figure things out. And that was the one gift that my dear friend David Fetchheimer gave me, who trained me right at the beginning. He said... Thompson, stop reading the goddamn file. You're not going to figure it out. You got to get out there. You got to get out and get dirty. That's how you do this work.
0: Well, you did get involved early in your academic career as an investigator with Life Magazine, no less. How it began was it was supposed to be a multi-part study by life of the JFK assassination. And they did start to do um, some investigation that appeared in the magazine. But my question is, how did you get on board with that? And how did you manage to secure slides of the original film, which nobody had back in the 60s?
1: Well, that, the latter is a complicated story. The former is, is much more simply explained. Back in the 60s, the communication world, the world of publishing and magazines and newspapers, was all a very small world. Everybody knew everybody. After I was contracted to do a book for Bernard Geis Associates, they had just published and made a ton of money out of Valley of the Dolls. So Bernie Geis knew uh, Ludon Wainwright at Life magazine. And I told Bernie that I really wanted to see the Zapruder film because I'd heard that the really lousy copy available for all of us in the archives was
0: surpassed
1: infinitely by what life had. That the archives copy was a copy of a copy of a copy and the resolution was poor. So he got in touch with Ludon Wainwright and uh, Wainwright told him, oh, well, that's kind of interesting that you have somebody doing this. Is he any good? <laughs> and I think Bernie said, hell, I don't know. He's a college professor. <laughs> right? So Luden Wainwright, Ed Kern, and Dick Billings, three life editors showed up at Geiss's office, and I did too. And we had a meeting. And it went very, very swimmingly, because we all got what we wanted. They hired me as a consultant for the princely sum of fifteen hundred bucks and two hundred bucks a month, and I got to see the Zapruder film and basically was given free reign because they didn't know anything about the assassination. It was marvelous. So I came up with an investigative plan to investigate exactly what I wanted to investigate. My witnesses, the evidence in the archives, all of this. It was I mean, it was like I was felt like I was a kid in a candy store. If I I wanted to see some evidence in the archives, oh, yes, we'll arrange that, and a photographer showed up, and one day I was there and was handed Oswald's rifle. I worked the bolt in Oswald's rifle, then commission exhibit 399, the magic bullet was shown, we looked at that, we photographed all this, we did anything that I wanted to do, and that also included witnesses in Dallas, because... The national press was in pretty poor odor, but Life Magazine at that day was, was something else. So people would see you. If you were coming from Life Magazine, they would see you. So all of these things were, were great. I ended up copying the Zapruder film. People might say, you stole the Zapruder film, tank. And I suppose there's a lot of merit in that view. <laughs> because one Friday night when I was alone in the office, well, I actually had taken a 35 millimeter camera with about 20 rolls of 36 exposure film with me when I went there, and it was all wrapped up in Christmas paper. So I guess one might say that I probably didn't know that this was unauthorized, as they say. But uh, I did, and then used those copies of the film to make the kind of studies that hadn't been made before. In principle among those studies was, what happened to Kennedy at the time he's hit in the head? Well, you can see it. His head explodes in 313. What happened to the head before then? What happened to the head after that? And you can graph that, and you can come up with pretty exact figures on all that.
0: We probably should take a moment to explain that in the Zapruder film, all the frames are numbered. And it's on frame 313 that a fatal blow is obvious. The work you did did lead to the 1966 Life Edition that did address the issue of calling them a, a matter of a reasonable doubt about the case, about the official findings. And at that time, the magazine did take a close look at the time interval between JFK's initial wounding and Governor Connolly's to conclude, as the governor contended for the rest of his life, they could not have been struck by the same bullet. And I gather that came directly out of what you started.
1: Yeah, the interest of Kern and Billings and of life was in the difficulties with the so-called single bullet theory. And with that in mind, the three of us interviewed Dr. Gregory, who operated on John Connolly's wrist and other work was done. That that was pretty much what they were interested in. That particular issue, it was I think November 26, 1966, and it splashed across the cover. Grounds for reasonable doubt. Yeah. That was the first break in the establishment news coverage of the assassination. Up to that point, There had been absolute adulation from all the organs, all the networks, the New York Times, uh, the Washington Post, everybody had simply accorded adulation to the Warren Report. However, that summer of 1966, Mark Lane's book had come out, Epstein's book had come out, and I think that was why I got hired. I think these, these editors honestly smelled blood in the water on this, and they wanted to go after it. And I was the guy who, who could simply tell him where to go, who to interview. So that's how it worked.
0: Well, I know the magazine promised further uh, investigations of it, and, and that just had never materialized in the magazine.
1: Yeah, I have no idea why that happened. I, I never even met the editor of the magazine. I never met any of the power brokers yeah. in the Time Life building. I learned in February that they were closing down this investigation. It started in October um, and was pretty well closed down. Uh, Honestly, I didn't care because my contract with LIFE gave me permission to publish anything we had found, to use any contacts for pictures, etc., etc., that we had found six months after they discontinued their investigations. I was kind of nice because, well, I guess I never thought I was going to write that book. I clearly thought at the beginning that life was going to blow this open because the Zapruder film was so clear. Yeah. You could see what was happening on the Zapruder film. You couldn't get beyond
0: that. Let's address one of the most controversial aspects of the case uh, overall. Uh, Something that Life Magazine did not do was get around to addressing the problems of the fatal wounding of the president. Now, you had access to those original materials, and you've noted later on that you did what the FBI should have done, which was measure the relative distances in the president's position to see what that might reveal. This led you to conclude that the president was struck twice. You concluded that back in 1967. You now concede that you did make an error in measurement, which is quite significant, and I wanted you to explain that.
1: Yeah, It's clear that you have some evidence of impact debris thrown forward from the head shot over the occupants of the limousine, as far forward as the hood ornament, as a matter of fact. In various photographs taken that night, you can see blood spatter on the windshield. It's even more clear that a really hard, significant amount of impact debris was ejected, was thrown backwards and to the left, covering the helmets, the windscreens, and the motors of the two motorcyclists riding to the left rear. Because if this is a single shot from the rear, which enters... Kennedy's head on the midline and bl- blows out the right side of his head. You would expect the impact debris to go on Officer Cheney, who's only four feet away, riding off the right side of the yeah. uh, of the limousine. The wind actually is going from left to right towards Cheney at this point. So, in that in that first instance, you have the duplexity of impact debris. With regard to where that shot was fired, you have again, duplexity. It's clear that some shots were fired from the sixth floor corner window. No doubt about that. There is very significant, I might even say overwhelming evidence of a shot fired from the right front from the stockade fence on the knoll. So once again, you have (laughs) duplexity. You have front and rear. The medical evidence itself indicates something of that. This duplexity of evidence remains. It's been there from the beginning, uh, and it remains. What's changed is, at that point in time, I thought that I could measure the movement of Kennedy's head between three twelve frame 312 and 313, pretty exactly. What I didn't recognize at that time was 313 presents a kind of optical illusion. It presents that illusion because the camera moved while the shutter was open. It jogged horizontally. So where you see points of light in 312, those points of light become several inches of smear. It's absolutely clear that the blur effect, if you will, makes it impossible to come up with any accurate measurements in 313. We know Kennedy was hit in the back of the head, right? There's no question of that from the medical evidence, from the throw of impact debris forward, et cetera. But that doesn't mean it happened then. So when this became clear to me, I began looking for when it happened. When did it happen? Well, we know Kennedy was not hit in the head before 312 when he's perfectly fine. Had to be after that. And about 340, he disappears from sight. So it had to be between 312 and 340. That's what, 28 frames? That's not a lot. Well, I found it. At 328, Kennedy's head begins a forward movement that is the most dramatic forward movement in this whole sequence. It go it moves over 6 inches in 3 frames. At the same time, his head wound changes in character reasonably dramatically. A lot of blood and gore is blown out of the front and drips down in front of his head, a flap opens up and can it down. And of course his head is his head and body are thrown thrown forward at this point. There is also significant evidence that Connolly ends up being hit in the wrist at this point. So uh, the result of this is the duplexity of the evidence, the fact that around the killing of Kennedy there is this kind of duplexity, that remains. Only now the two shots didn't happen within an eighteenth of a second. They happened seven-tenths of a second apart. And that 7 tenths of a second is a very interesting figure because the acoustics evidence in this case says that following a shot at 312, 313, the next shot was fired 7 tenths of a
0: second later. So if I can summarize it, your original scenario was that he was struck from the rear, and everyone accepts there was a a blow from the rear, which because the debris went forward, but then a subsequent shot came from the knoll, but uh, a a split second later. In your revised version, correcting the measurements, you now conclude the initial shot, which matches the acoustics perfectly, came from the knoll, and they did do an acoustics fingerprint to show that it did, followed a split second later by um, the shot that came from the rear. And I do want to add that having looked at the Zapruder film uh, in great detail with with a friend in Sacramento who had a marvelous copy of it, I did puzzle over what you're describing, that there is something that takes place a split second later that you now believe is evidence of the shot from the rear. What's really interesting about the acoustics from my perspective is that back in 1967, you found a railroad worker named Sam Holland and talked to him about what he had seen. And I think Mark Lane had spoken to him previously, filmed it, you can see it on YouTube. He says, I saw a puff of smoke in the foliage up on the grassy knoll. You went with the man to the fence and said, what did you see behind the fence? And he described footprints going back and forth at a certain spot. You then went across the street to duplicate the Mormon Polaroid that's taken just after the the fatal wounding, and asked the man where he was standing, and, and his head appears to be exactly where a lump appears on the Mormon photo, which is exactly where the acoustic fingerprint indicates a gun was. It's an amazing confluence of evidence.
1: This basic evidence in this case, like Holland's um, recollections, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, are often forgotten and they're, they're often devalued because we know about them and have known about them for for so long. What's enormously impressive about what Holland says is that they're corroborated by other people at that time. They're corroborated by Holland's actions. Holland says basically he's on the overpass, he's looking up towards the depository and Elm Street coming down, and he says there was a flurry of shots from the upper end of Elm Street. And then there was another shot that had a different sound to it, and it seemed to him that it came from down here near the corner of the fence. And at the same time, he sees smoke erupt over the top of the fence or in that, in that area. But he doesn't leave it there. Having seen this, he goes to see what was going on over there. And he doesn't do this alone. Three of the seven other people who saw smoke there go with him. And they go to the corner of the fence down there, and they find behind the fence some, it had rained that morning, so there are muddy footprints, cigarette butts, and some mud up on the fence. So it's not just this is a witness. First of all, this is a witness who said this that afternoon, right at the time. And there are all these other witnesses who also gave statements that afternoon. So these are as good witness statements as you're ever going to get in a criminal case. They're from people who are disinterested, who have nothing to gain from this. They are witnesses who actually did something in concert with what they saw. And as a matter of fact, just to put the cherry on the top of this, other officers, sheriffs and Dallas police officers, reported in their reports that they ran into railway workers who said they saw smoke at this location that afternoon, at that time. So you have corroboration from the cops, you've got multiple people. This is about as good as witness testimony as you're ever going to find.
0: Well, again, it's remarkable that where, where Holland places cigarette butts and footprints, a lump appears in a photograph at the moment of the, of the shooting, which is a temporary lump. Later, you showed later photographs that...
1: It's a shape along the fence It's a shape line.
0: along the fence that's not there later. But what's, what's most amazing is that when the Dicta Belt, the Dallas Police Dicta Belt, turned up and it was analyzed and the House Select Committee decided to match it to where shots may have originated, they came to the conclusion that one shot came from something like 12 feet west of the southwest corner of the stockade fence, which is, which is virtually exactly where you find the lump.
1: What's impressive here is that test shots were fired from behind that fence. The acoustic scientists in, in reducing the window for a match from six milliseconds to one millisecond, right? in doing that, they we're able to set up the actual position of the cycle
0: at the moment when the shot's fired and the exact firing point. So the, the, the acoustics indicated that where, they, where the test microphone was was not quite right. A better match was exactly where the lump was. Well put. Okay. We have quite a bit more of our discussion with Professor Josiah Thompson, which I think we're going to save for a future installment of this program. As This is probably a good place to, uh, to end it today. I would heartily suggest that anyone interested in this should go onto YouTube and take a look at some of the uh, film from back in the 60s with the man we're talking about, S.M. Holland, and some of the information related to the acoustics. I think you'll find it uh, convincing. Let's take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. we got, we got some more, so stick around.